And we'll examine Jesus' words in verses 16 through 20. And then we'll pray. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for that promise that you are with us to the end of the age that we have not been left alone in this world, and that when we gather here for worship, we don't worship some distant, far-off God. Lord, we confess that you are, are far above us, that you are not like us, that what we understand of you is, is but a mere sliver of who you are. It is all, it is all true, but we cannot, we cannot fathom you in the fullness of who you are and your being and your glory and your character. And yet, even though you are a God who is lofty and high and lifted up, you are a God who is present with us, who even by your Spirit lives in us, who, who meets with your church in a special way as we gather here today. Lord, we thank you that you have called us here. Lord, as we uh, consider what, what are our next steps, who are we? Would you, uh, would you reveal that to us? Would you, uh, would you show us who you want us to be? Would you show us how you've uniquely gifted us to, um, to serve and spread your kingdom here on earth in this little amount of time that we have to praise you and to worship you in evangelism and through suffering and, and in this time. Lord, give us great uh, willingness to be obedient, to take steps, to move forward. Lord, we pray this morning also for our missionaries, Ted and Renati Rubesh. Lord, we thank you uh, for the early celebration of Christmas that they had with family in Seattle and the joy that was to them. We thank you that they got to spend Christmas with Renati's family in Germany as well. Lord, as they return to Sri Lanka, we pray that you would bring them in uh, safely, that their travels would, um, would go smoothly, that they would get settled in there, that they would stay healthy. Lord, uh, as they're already, it's already time to complete another round of paperwork for their next round of visas, Lord, would you uh, help them to do so efficiently, quickly? Would you let those visas be granted? And Lord, maybe even grant visas that last longer uh, so that they don't have to do this so frequently. Lord, we pray with them at their request for their children and their grandchildren that they would walk faithfully with you. And, and Lord, I think that resonates with us. We pray that not only for them, but for us. Lord, we, we want to see you uh, use our families and our homes as nurseries for heaven where you raise up kingdom citizens. And so, Lord, we pray that our children and our grandchildren and generation after generation of our families might know, might know you, love you, serve you, delight in you spend eternity with, with each other and with you in heaven. Lord, we pray also for the Sri Lankan church there, that they would uh, take seriously the call to evangelize, that the kingdom would spread, and that the gospel would go forth from them and from us. 
Lord, give us uh, great insight and understanding into your word and a willingness to be obedient to it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask the question that I've already asked this morning. Who is Trinity Baptist Church? Now, what is its physical address? But who, who are we? What, what are we doing in the world? What, what unique role are we playing in God's kingdom? Excuse me, coffee with milk is a bad idea before you sing. I'm just going to say that right now. What principles, and theology for that matter, guide and shape the way we do ministry? What do we value? These are questions that the elders have been asking. And we've been working through uh, some some processes of how to try and and answer them. Ultimately, what we want to come to is, is what is the vision of Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, another way to say that is, uh, what is the unique, I've already asked this, what is the unique role for which God has placed us here in this time? Why has he made you a part of this body? What, what is your function in the body? What, what role do you play here? See, God has, not, God has not gifted every church identically. I don't think he's given every church an identical role in the kingdom. I do think, however, the mission he has put the church on is the same. And so we want to start by asking the question, uh, what is the mission that God has put his church on? Now, as we consider the mission, and therefore a mission statement, we want to ask the question, uh, what, what is the mission that God has put the church on? And, and that's not just a mission for us. It's a mission for all churches, all Christians, in all places, in all time. But it also has to be something that we can use. When we come up with this mission statement, it has to be something, it can't just be something that we come up with and file away and then never use again. It has to be something that defines us. It has to be something that defines who we are. One of the things we find as we look at church mission statements is that many of them are very, very similar, oftentimes stating the same thing just in different words. I think this is a really good thing. I think this is a really positive thing because if the mission of the church is given to us by God, then it's not something we invent. And when we see lots of faithful churches saying that they're on the same mission, we can probably say we're barking up the right tree. So the question then is, why do we need a new one? We have a mission statement. Why do we need a new one? Is there a problem with the old one? Well, no. And yes. Let me ask you, who here can tell me, this is a real question, You feel free to raise your hand. Who here can tell me the mission statement of Trinity Baptist Church in its entirety. Trudy, you got it? Let her rip. That's really, really close. You all should applaud that. I mean, that was very, very good. Can anybody else state all 29 words of the mission statement? 
There's the problem. It's really good in what it says. And one of the things we saw very quickly is that we don't want to come up with a new concept, a new identity, a new mission for Trinity. We simply want to have something that, that, is, uh, that has handles on it, that, that we're able to communicate a little better. If you didn't hear that, I'll read it to you. Here is our current mission statement. Moved by passion for God and compassion for people, we seek to meet people where they are and help them take next steps to become wholehearted followers of Christ. It's really, really good. But we wanted to, um, we wanted to see if we could shrink it down. And so we, we came up with a, a, a very similar but simplified mission statement. There are kind of four major emphases in this statement, and I would like to share them with you in order. And so we're going to build this a little bit piece by piece, and I'd like to explain what each piece means as we go. So the first part of our mission, sta- mission statement is taking steps. Taking steps. This might seem simple, but it's not. In fact, I said, I said, some, I said uh, I'm trying to remember the context of where it was this week. Maybe it was a staff meeting. But as I reflect on my time, uh, particularly as a high school pastor at a large church in Tucson, I think one of my, f- my great failures in that ministry was, was forgetting that we're all taking steps. Uh, it was easy to stand up in front of, of these youth that I, I cared for, that I loved, that I was passionate about, that I wanted holiness and happiness for, and those two things are inextricably connected. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. Young adults, listen to me right now. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. Sin offers fleeting pleasure. And it's real pleasure. But it will leave you sad and miserable and empty. Holiness and happiness are connected. And because of this this passion I had for them and a genuine love and care for them, I was like, you guys got to be holy. You got to live holy lives right now. And I don't think I was wrong. Because the Bible demands holiness of us. The standard set for us in Scripture is that we are to be holy as God is holy. Notice that it never says be holy like God is holy. It says, be holy as God is holy, to the same degree, to the same measure, in the exact same way that God is holy, you and I are to be holy. Anybody there yet? Not even close. None of us are even close. Now, God could have said, the moment you become a believer, I'm going to perfect you, sin will no longer be a struggle for you, but he has not. He has left us in process. Why is that? I can't nail down one verse that says, here is the verse that tells us why God has left us in process. But I think the answer from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 is so that we would cling 
desperately in dependence to Jesus. We, we, we can't rely on ourselves. We can't rely on our own strength. None of us are perfect, and so we need Jesus. I love this time of year when it starts to snow. Forgive the analogy, I think I've shared it before, but when it starts getting wet and cold and nobody's going in the backyard, I don't clean up after the dogs as much as I should. And it gets pretty messy out there sometimes. And usually when you're looking out the window, you can't see it, you know. But, uh, but if you go and try and walk through the backyard, you got to be careful. And then the snow comes. And it's just clean and white and beautiful and pure. And you can even walk on it safely because it blankets everything. I'm always reminded of Isaiah, though our sins are as scarlet, he will make us whiter than snow. It doesn't matter how much crap I shovel into my life, his mercy is more. And Christ's righteousness can blanket over all of it. I didn't put that in my notes, but I'm always reminded of that this time of year. I love the snow. But we've all been left in process. We're all taking steps. If we look to our perfection as evidence for our salvation, we'll all be greatly disappointed. We have to look to our progress because God is transforming us day by day. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Notice how there's this dualistic nature in here where we are taking steps, but it's the Spirit who is at work within us. As Paul tells us, we are by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so we're all taking steps. Now, I would encourage you to, to remind yourself of this. But, but here's, here's what I would remind yourself of. I, I, I think most of us, are pretty good at being gentle with ourselves when we need to take next steps. It's when other people need to take steps that it gets problematic. I have a dear friend who, um, speaking of uh, another difficult person in the church, it was not here, this is none of you, <laughs> okay? But I have a dear friend who in another church, and speaking of a very difficult person in that church, he made an incredibly profound statement. He said, her sinfulness grates up against my sinfulness. I loved the two-sided confession of that. We, we all have to understand that we are in progress. But do you leave room for other people to be in progress too? Are you, are you patient and tender and gentle with them when they're taking their next steps? We're all taking steps to become wholehearted followers of Jesus. But we are taking steps together. Oh, I went too far. Let's go back one. 
Well, we can just leave it up there. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. We're taking steps together. Uh, we can't do this alone. The Christian life is not one that God has called us to live in isolation. We were listening to a Bob Goff uh, book on our way home from California some time ago. And in this book, he said, he's talking about people who, Christians in particular, who don't really have much affection for the church, don't like being at church, don't love and long to be with God's people. And he said, I tell these people, man, if you don't like people, heaven is going to be really, really disappointing to you. And I think he's right. God has not left us uh, here on this earth taking steps alone. Our identity as Christians works against us here, or as Americans works against us here. I think there are several places in which our identity as Americans uh, works against us. But that uh, I can do it my way, on my own, I'm a pioneer, I can, uh, you know, I just pull myself up by my bootstraps kind of mentality doesn't serve us well because it's not the way God has designed us. It's pride, particularly in the Christian life, that leads us to that. It's not the only way, place I think our identity causes us to struggle. I uh, had coffee with somebody a, a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, as an American, I don't really understand what it means to live under a king. So I'm not sure I really understand what it means that Jesus is the king. Oh, I've been thinking on that. I think he's right, and I don't think I understand it either. But it's got me thinking. We're, we're taking steps together. I don't want to labor this point because we've looked a lot at it uh, lately. But 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, it's about to be instructions about communion. He says, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Uh, the, there is this assumption, and even later in 1 Corinthians, or maybe it's right before this, he says, when you come together as a church... There is the, something about the act of coming together that defines what a church is. Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. Let us draw near. This is draw near to God through Christ. That's the context of Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with, to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let, let us approach God like we're covered in snow. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You cannot draw near to God without the implication of drawing near to others to encourage, to provoke, is kind of literally what the Greek word is here, to provoke love and good works. How do we do that? Verse 25, by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If I can be really bold for a minute, I'm sick and tired of Christians saying, life is so busy, I just can't be that involved in church. Because if I understand Hebrews 10.25, right? Every day that goes by is another day that causes us to prioritize, not decentralize the church. We are to, to, to draw, to, to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the draw, day drawing near. 
Do you think Jesus' return might be soon? Stop making excuses. They're like butts. Everybody has one and they all stink. Notice in this passage that it is both our justification, that our hearts are sprinkled clean, and our need of sanctification to encourage one another all the more that requires us to gather together. Both of those, being legally declared not guilty and being in a process of being made more like Christ requires us to meet together. And so we are taking steps together. We are taking steps together, thirdly, as as you can already see up there, to love God. Love God. We chose the word love here, and this was the the greatest word in this statement that that was debated because we wanted to capture the idea of what it means to be wholehearted. Now, if you have grown up in the church and you're well-educated in Scripture, you might know that biblically the word know carries a lot more than just intellectual assent. Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. There's an intimate idea in knowing. There is a whole person idea biblically in knowing. But that's not the way people talk today. And so we didn't want to say uh, taking steps together to know God. Because we didn't feel like it captured a a wholehearted uh, worship of God. He's not calling us just to mere intellectual assent. You can, you can know something and not love it. I know that at Thanksgiving, people make sweet potatoes with brown sugar and marshmallows. I do not love it. Maybe you had that yesterday. I'm sorry if you did, and I'll pray for you. But you know what I didn't know? I didn't know I loved sweet potatoes. I'd never just had a sweet potato that had been prepared any other way than that. And all of a sudden, one day, with great hesitancy, I ate a sweet potato. And I loved it. You can not love what you know. But you can't love what you don't know. Let me say that again. You can know something and not love it. You can know a lot about God and not love him. But you cannot love God for what you don't know about him. And so when we say love God, this is that wholehearted idea that we would both know God and love God. And so we're taking steps. We're all in progress. And we're in progress together, and we're in progress to love God, but not just to love God. Let me share a couple of verses with that. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Above all else, we are to love God. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, <clears throat> in, in, when we read this in the Pentateuch, 
uh, in the Hebrew, it's a bit of a strange uh, construction. It says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your very. It's an adjective. It's kind of like with, with the absolute very most of everything is the idea there. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, but not just those things, all of our very, everything you have, your family, your business, your job, your church, your home, your car, your retirement portfolio, it is all given to you for the purpose of loving God. We love him to the utmost with everything, with all of our very. But the call here is not just to love God, it is also to love our neighbor as ourselves in the same way that we love ourselves. And and all of the commandments and all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two. And so finally, we see that we are not just taking steps together to love God, but we are taking steps together to love God and make him known. Now why on earth would we just after taking great lengths to explain that we, we are calling you to love God, would we say we just want to make him known? Don't we want people to love God? Yes, we do. But we don't have control of that. That's, that's God's business. Our job is to make him known to tell people who he is and what he has done, to tell them of his reign and his rule and his redemption. But whether or not they love him, that's between them and God. We can't make anyone love God. And so we have to be content with only, uh, with the reality that we're called to go out and make him known. Our job is not just to love God. The mission of the church is to invite others into that relationship of love that God has for us. And we for him. The mission of the church isn't just to know God. It's to love God. And that will be the goal for eternity. But we want to invite as many people into that as we can. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. We've read it already. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I won't get into the Greek here. If you're interested in that, you can ask me later. But there's actually four commandments in, this, uh, in this, these two verses. One is to go. Jesus commands us to go. Second is to make disciples. We are commanded to make disciples. Thirdly is to baptize. We are to baptize believers, and believers are to be baptized. And the fourth is to teach. We go, we make disciples, we baptize, and we teach. Right before uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, it says, So when they had come together, that is, when the, the, the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to give Israel back the primary position in the world that it used to have or that we think it should have? This is all about their idea that Israel should be elevated above everything else. And he kind of rebukes them. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you, and here's the mission he puts his church on, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The next verses say that he's going to come back in the same way. He went up on a cloud, he'll come back on a cloud, and everywhere in between, the mission of the church is to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17, drawing off of the book of Isaiah. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? In other words, how can unbelievers ask for help from a God in which they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? How can people believe if they haven't heard? Haven't heard? And how can they hear if somebody doesn't go? And how can somebody go if they're not sent? What's the implication of Paul? Who's sent to preach the good news? Pastors? Romans isn't a pastoral epistle. He's writing to the church at Rome. They are all, and you are all, and we are all called to preach the good news. To tell people what Christ has done. If you want beautiful feet, preach the good news. I don't mean literally that your feet will be transformed. But but do you want people to see you as the bearer of good news? then bring good news. But guess what? Not all have obeyed the gospel, verse 16. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Not everybody you share the gospel with is going to believe. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to tell them. Their responsibility is to believe. We speak, and then it's on them. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice it doesn't doesn't say that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the messenger. No, it's through the word of Christ. We simply go share the word of Christ with a dying world and faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, We are taking steps together to love God and make him known. It's the exact same thing, just in, I think, 11 words instead of 29. It's who we are. And that is is the the mission that God has put every church on. Next week, we're going to look at what are the values that God has specifically given us as a church that are going to shape our ministry But in closing, I want to share this. At least in my own head, I'm reminded of this by thinking of this kind of GC3 formula. What do I mean by GC3 formula? Well, uh, I think one of the things we can see is that uh, this, this breaks down into three parts. We are taking steps together. We are taking steps together to love God, and we are taking steps together to make him known. This taking steps together is the idea of great community. I want want the community. I want us to be a, 
a, a unified people. Forget that. God wants us to be a unified people that we enjoy and love and delight in. But you know, that's not really up to us. By us, I mean the elders and pastors. This is a whole church thing. When we press into relationships, growth groups, adult Bible classes, hospitality in our own homes, relationships with other believers, maybe especially those who don't look and talk like us, we, we see this, this uh, unity begin to well up among us. Are all of your, your friends here of the same generation as you? Make some more friends. We want to be a great community. We also want to obey the great commandment. That is to love God. And we want to fulfill the great commission. We want to be a great community, being obedient to the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission. I think as we went through this uh, series, Home for Christmas, that we just wrapped up last week, this is what we saw. We saw that the church is to look in to its own community, that a church is to look up to the glory of God, and that the church is to look out into the world. Those are, those are not anything new. But what happens when as a church, we don't balance these well? Because I think the tendency among most churches, and, and, and I, I'm not faulting any church for this, I just think it's something we need to be aware of. I think the tendency among most churches is to get usually two of these right and to neglect the third. Well, what happens when a church does? What happens when we emphasize two of these over another? What happens if, if we remove the importance of taking steps together? What if we're just a great commandment and a great commission church, but not a great community church? What we're left with is a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians. And if you're younger, a bunch of solo artist Christians. A bunch of people making music on their own. A bunch of people trying to get uh, things done by themselves. But the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And solo artists have producers. And record labels. And managers. Nobody gets things done alone. It's not healthy for you to go about the Christian life all on your own. Hey, I love God, and I share the gospel, but the church, I'm not so sure about it. It doesn't get my time. It doesn't get my attention. That's not, that's not what God has designed for us. Remember, as we went through John chapter 17, we saw that it's our love for one another that shows the world we are Christ's disciples. We are not Lone Ranger Christians. What happens, however, if we leave out the great commandment? We're just a great community church and a great commission church. Man, we love being together. We love gathering. We love singing. And we love telling people about Jesus. 
But that deep theology stuff, we don't really need it. We're a bunch of con artists. We're selling what we don't buy. Hey, God is worthy of praise and honor and worship, but don't bother knowing him well enough to know how to praise and honor and worship him. You ever ask, you know, door-to-door salesmen aren't very common these days. But maybe the most important question you could ask a door-to-door salesman is, do you use what you're selling? If they don't, they don't believe in it. And if we don't really love God for all of who he is, and by the way, let me just tell you, if you want to know God for all that he has revealed about himself, you're going to be offended. Some of it's going to be hard. It's going to challenge you. Because God, God doesn't always fit in the boxes that we want to put him in. He's not always neat and clean like we want him to be or what we think neat and clean would be. I don't mean that to say that God is in any way bad, but I'm saying we bring these preconceived notions of a docile, gentle, Swedish Jesus and we think that, that, you know, hey, I love the idea that kids sit on his lap and he's seeking a lamb. But fashioning a whip, I'm not so sure about. We got to believe everything about God. And we're never going to satisfactorily represent him in the world if we don't buy what we're selling. It's not, it's not enough just to, to be a great community and a great commission church. We have to be all three. What if we're a great community and a great commandment church? We love being together. We love studying the Bible. I come to church early. I get coffee. I go to an adult Bible class. And then I go to church. And then I go to BSF. And then I go to, I don't even know, there's other stuff going on. Like, you could be here a lot of days of the week. And that's all fine. That's all well. Nothing is inherently wrong with any of those things. They're all good things, in fact. But if you spend so much of your time inside the church and never with other people, oh, I'm I'm hospitable, but only towards the church. If all of your community is Christians, all of your effort is spent at having great community and fulfilling the great commandment without fulfilling the great commission, what kind of church is that? It's a little bit like a monk, cloistered up, hidden, hiding from the world. But the reality is, that's a dying church. It's a dying church. We've all heard the proverbial story of the church that has become all gray hair. You know how churches become all gray hair? They start thinking that things are about them and not about the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. They think everything's about my comfort and my growth and my community and not passing my faith down onto the next generation or my neighbors or my coworkers. The surest way to use the language of Revelation to see a church have its lampstand removed is to forget that God has put us here on a mission. 
a mission to proclaim the gospel, a mission to call people to repentance, a mission to call them into the worship of the God whom we love and the community of the church that we delight in. A church that only gets two of these right is not a healthy church. We must get all three right. We must be together and in process of sanctification, being conformed more and more into the image of God. We must love God and know him, and we must make him known. Next week, we're going to look at six values, six values that we believe Scripture gives us that will shape our ministry. We'll probably put a graphic up for this next week. But, but this is a little bit like the, the North Star, is, is one resource put it. This is, this is setting the direction of the church. We are moving in the direction of great community, great commandment, and great commission. But what keeps us on that path? What keeps us from mission drift? Because it doesn't take being off very much to, to get further and further and further away from where you're supposed to go. What is going to keep us centered on these things? Well, if I could, I would charge that it's a little bit like a river. I, I came on staff at the church in Tucson I referred to earlier, and they said, Logan, Christ Community Church is, a, is like a river. This is the direction we're headed. And you're free to float anywhere in the river you would like to float, as long as you're floating in the river. It was a good analogy. What they didn't tell me was where the banks of the river were. How do I know when I've floated too far one way or the other? How do I know when I'm still on track? Well, on one side of the river is our, is our doctrinal statement. And that's in our uh, bylaws, it's in our constitution, it's, it's easy to get a hold of. And the other side of the river is these six values that we'll look at next week. These six values that will give shape to our ministries, our doctrinal statement that will hem us in, and these things will keep us pointed in the right path towards becoming a great commission, great commandment, great community church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be the church that you want us to be. We want to be a church that glorifies you, that proclaims the gospel, that loves you, that serves you, and that delights in one another. Lord, we want to, uh, out of great passion for you and compassion for people, help people take next steps at becoming wholehearted followers of you. And to Lord, that, to that end, help us to be a church taking steps together to love you and to make you known. Would you use it to glorify yourself in ways that we, we cannot? We love you, Lord, and we... Um, We just thank you for the redemption that you have secured for us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing one more song together? I don't know if this is a well-known song among us or not. I hope it is. 
uh, but I've absolutely fallen in love with the lyrics. And so um, if you know it, sing out. 